Hello and welcome to episode one of the Cred Podcast. This week, John McDonald. Hi, my name is Joel Davies and you are listening to the Cred Podcast, where we discuss learning and development with top experts in the field. The aim of this podcast is to provide you with insights, tactics, tools, and ideas that you can use to make your organizations healthier and more productive. Today, I'll be talking with John McDonald, who is the CEO of Proactive Resolutions. Proactive Resolutions are an international consultancy who specialize in preventing and managing conflict in the workplace. In this episode, John covers a lot, including the importance of having uncomfortable conversations, the problem with ticker box initiatives, keeping training lean, focusing on memorable stories, and much, much more. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with John McDonald. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure, mate. Pleasure. So I thought we'd start by spending a couple of minutes um, getting you just to fill our listeners in on who you are, what your background is, and what your role is at Proactive Resolutions. Okay, so um, I'm the Chief Executive Officer here currently. Um, we have been in business for 20 years. Uh, we aim to build better lives for people at work, essentially, and uh, both in terms of training people to prevent conflict, coming in when there's conflict in the workplace, and... Uh, we have a team of forensic psychologists that do what we call violence risk assessment and management. And uh, so I've been at that now for 20 years. Prior to that, I was uh, 10 years with the New South Wales Police. Prior to that, uh, 10 years with New South Wales Education. And then in between those five years running a business called TJA, which does similar things or did similar things to Proactive and we are located here in Sydney, uh, in Canada, the States. Um, we work a lot in the UK and Europe. And I guess in the last four or five years, we've worked in around 30 countries. So really, uh, you know, my job is to oversee all this, to inspire people to get motivated and keep at it. And um, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's been fun. Sounds like an interesting job. So from your experience then, Based on the work you've done with Proactive and even more broadly with some of the other work that you've done, what do you see are the skills or competencies that are most lacking in organisations that you work with? So we work and have worked with um, all types of corporations and government agencies, local, state and federal, and uh, I guess mostly large, large organisations, but from my experience, knowing how to engage with each other has been um, one of the key parts of all the key skills that people lack in organisations. And, you know, really it's about essentially trying to slow down and listen to each other. So what's not done, we generally tend not to consult sufficiently widely within our own organisations and then we often don't listen to clients or customers a lot either. So, um, you know, we work in the, in the area of behaviour and conflict and a lot of that stems from simply not being able to slow down and engage with each other and listen. So what are the kind of things we should be listening for then? If we are going to slow down and listen better, what would we expect to hear? Well, really, um, you know, it strikes me that 
a genuine listening is is almost a rare skill <laughs> um, because we're so loaded up with what we're looking to hear that we often can't filter out um, what what we're looking to hear. So, um, you know, it's it's really just trying to focus completely on what the person you, you're trying to engage with is trying to communicate to you. Um, and that, I think, is, is actually harder than we think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true outside of the workplace as well. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. You know, I've, I've been married a long time and my wife shares your view on that. <laughs> I'm sure she does. So what are some of the biggest challenges you face in your work with Proactive, um, specifically in the context of delivering learning and development initiatives? And how do you overcome them if you, in fact, do? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, For us, it's getting the buyer, as it were, to understand the importance of paying attention to their own people beyond simply ticking a training box or whatever Mm. it is. There's a lot of tick the boxes in the people area of business. It's it's also unusual for decision makers in organisation to pay anywhere near as much attention to how their people behave with each other as it is to more the more technical financial aspects of the business. Uh, and, and when they do pay attention, it, it can be in response to probably an internal survey or census exercise that tells them staff are not engaged or not committed to the organisation and are simply going through the motions. So, you know, we, we kind of sit up and take notice for a short period of time and get get our HR people or learning and development people to come in and do some training or hire some training and we can tick the box. So, uh, you know, our our experience and I think everybody's experience is that every organisation and business succeeds or fails based on how well we all work together. Uh, and it's astonishing then how little effort and commitment is put into that aspect of the workplace. And and like I said, when the effort is put in, it's often half-hearted and, and not sufficiently resourced. Mm. So then how do you get people to want to move past just ticking a box from your experience? Um, with great difficulty. The, uh, you know, we, we make a lot of assumptions. We assume that um, everybody's well-intended and they probably are. And we assume that we know how to interact and engage with each other, which we probably don't often um and uh you know we just expect people to act like adults when acting like adults often means behaving like children um you know without without um you know putting each other down and that but um so just just to um you know the opportunity for um leaders in an organization to demonstrate that they they often don't know what to do either is crucial in terms of interacting and engaging with people. So, you know, if you can persuade a leader or a leader understands the importance of them being vulnerable in front of their own people and not having all the answers, um, it kind of gives them uh, some legitimacy with their people. It gives them authority with their people. Um, Not that you, you know, you've got to know some things obviously and have some, um, you know, some skills and knowledge around your business obviously and be pretty good at it. But um, you're not expected to know everything and have every answer. So, you know, anything which can help a leader or, or at, at any level of the organisation, you know, slow down and listen and um, not demonstrate that they know everything is important. And that's, I mean, that's a lot of what our work is about. 
is supporting people in in leadership positions or whatever level of an organisation to do that kind of thing. That's interesting. So can you think of an example of a leader that has maybe been through some of your training that has come back to you after trying to be a bit more vulnerable with their direct reports and that having a positive um, effect? Um, I, yeah, I think there's been quite quite a number over the years, and uh, and I think you know we we probably wouldn't be in business if there hadn't. But it, but again, it's um, it's an ongoing process. So once you start to recognise that you don't have to know everything, then you need to start to trust people to do the stuff that they were hired to do. So a lot a lot of people who are leaders in organisations think they were hired to do the job that they were hired to do, which they're not, if that makes sense. They're actually hired to inspire and motivate and 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 trust their their experts to do to deliver on what on what they're being held accountable for. So, you know, if if um, if you're building a team, you want a team of people who are better technically or content wise at the business than you are. Um, and and you know, for us the the leaders that um, appreciate that that we've been able to work with and 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 engage in conversations over that. Um, like the idea, get excited by it, get tested by it, uh, and and uh, you know feel a sense of relief. I guess that you don't have to know everything as the boss or the leader. So, and um, we tend to develop long term relationships with those people uh, in terms of ongoing support. Mm, that's great. So getting down to more of a granular tactical level, what do you think are the approaches, activities and or tactics that you see as having the greatest impact in learning and development initiatives in organisations? Yeah, I think that's um, pretty simple. I, I think that any activity that allows us to spend a little time understanding how we work together, what motivates us and what frustrates us about each other um, is crucial and beneficial, and and when time spent exploring this sort of stuff, it it um, it makes a big difference. And in L and D, anything that we're going to ask the the team or the troops or whatever term you want to call the staff, anything we're going to ask them to do, our sense is always start with the leadership team. So if you start with the leadership team and can help them to slow down and engage with each other, that will have uh, direct and significant impact on the people that work for us. So what kind of form does that take? Does that mean that it's a one-off um, workshop where we get a whole bunch of leaders that are able to spend that time that you've talked about? Is it an ongoing thing? Do we need to set aside a time on a weekly, fortnightly basis? From your opinion, what do you think works the best in terms of getting people together and having those conversations? I, yeah, I think... I think um, it's, it needs to be ongoing and we, you know, in organisations we spend lots of money and lots of time on buying hardware and software, for example, on putting systems in place, on hiring experts and consultants to come in and help with the maintenance and the upgrading of all that, um, all that technology and all those approaches. And, and we, don't, um, we don't do the same for our staff and for our people. Uh, good organisations do, by the way. They they focus on that, um, you know. And unless we do, and and it can't be a one a one off experience. It needs to be continual. And it's and you know, I mean, we're talking about people's behaviour. We're talking about what binds them together and motivates them to want to work together at work. 
um, and that can easily come unstuck. So you need to be in there all the time, you know, maintaining good relationships and healthy relationships and setting up protocols and systems whereby people can deal with each other when things go off the rails a little, which they always will from time to time. Mm. So moving on, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that organisations make when it comes to training and developing their people? And connected to that, what should they be doing differently? Well, I, 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 um, again, I know I sound like I'm repeating myself, but I think the biggest mistake we all make is thinking it can be a one-hit, tick-the-box event. And the most important aspect of any job for any of us is the relationships, relationships we have with the people that we work with. And relationships need to be regularly monitored and supported, and this is generally not the case. So the mistake we make is thinking that we all understand it and it's easy and natural, and it's actually not. We, we, we don't choose to be who we're with at work. You know, socially we can make choices. We can, um, you know, we can choose not to go out to events and things like that with people. But at work we've, we've got to knuckle down and get on with some people whose mannerisms or uh, habits or ways of communicating we might find difficult. So, you know, responding by putting in, here's how you have a conversation with someone, training people to do this and that and doing it once every four or five years. It's, it's not going to make a big difference really. It's, you know, you can tick the box and say, yeah, we've done the training, but that's all you've done. It's good for us as consultants. It's good, good for whoever the people are that have to tick that box, but it doesn't change behavior. Mm. It's interesting what you were saying. I guess a lot of times people don't get a chance to develop these skills in real life because like you said, most of the time we can escape. If we don't get on well with someone, we don't have to... Um, spend a lot of time with them, uh, unless it's our family, in which case we just have to deal. But in organizations, we often have to work with people on an ongoing basis that we don't necessarily get on really well with. So these are skills that we really need to develop. Yeah. And look, I mean, we, as you say, socially, you know, our favorite topic of conversation is each other. And we talk about each other relentlessly. And the same happens at work. So, um, you know, people don't check their their behavior at the door and suddenly change so um, you know it's it's important that we understand for example it's really unhelpful at work to start having you know unhelpful malicious gossip about each other and things like that which goes on in all social networks and systems of relationships and in the workplace we really have to actively um, you know put protocols and 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 uh, behavioral expectations in place to avoid that Mm, that's great. So looking back, let's say 10 to 15 years, what do you wish you knew about learning and development and the kind of work that Proactive does that you do know now? Uh, I mean, look, I thought I knew a lot back then. <laughs> I probably did. I probably had a bit more energy. Uh, but I think if um, if... If you're in L&D, you need to really dig what you're, what you're doing. You need to love it. And if you don't, then don't hang around because you walk into a room and our affect, our feelings, our emotions are powerfully contagious and everyone will know whether you're just going through the motions or not. So, you know, I think for people involved in delivering L&D, it, it, the material needs to be interesting and and current and... I think we need to keep the content to a minimum and 
we would, when we started in our business, I think load people up with so much information that um, who knows what they walked away with, probably the most unimportant anecdote that we told. Um, so, you know, I think um, just about every L&D session is overloaded with content and what we strive to do now is say, you know, when, when, when my people go out, I go, okay, so what are the two or three, three ideas that you want people to walk away thinking about, in, you know, in a two or four or six hour session? Um, because most of it is just going to go by the wayside unless they're using it instantly and regularly. So, you know, I think r- current and interesting material and minimal content is is what I would have done right from the get-go. And what do you think, so you, you mentioned anecdotes or one or two points, what tends to be the takeaway from people that have gone through your training before? What do they usually come back with? Is, is it the stories? Is it the, um, is it the research? You know, it, I mean, it, it, and it, I guess it changes for people. So it's nice to have some, uh, you know, some evidence base to what, to what informs our content and, and be able to give that to people that like that and are skeptical without it. Um, most of us are interested in stories that involve people, a, a personal stuff. And when we listen to a story, we always relate it to our own circumstances and think, oh, that's, yeah, I can, I, you know, I can get that. Um, or this is what I would have done in this situation or why the hell did they do that? So stories are crucial, uh, crucial um, methods of, uh, you know, delivering a lesson, I guess, for us. And then we, we tend to go, and if the story is a good one, we'll go home and tell our partners or the people we live with, and we'll probably embellish it or change it a bit. And that's great. You know, I mean, I'm sure only half of the stories I tell actually happen, but that's the way I remember them. Um, and I've tried to keep them interesting over the years. And so each time we go into a situation, you know, where people are in conflict or violence is happening or something like that, it's a new story. It's a new experience. Uh, you know, and we love to hear interesting stories. So, um, you know, the longer you are in the business, the more stories you have, which is always good. Can you give us an example of a story that you've seen be impactful for other people? I mean, it doesn't need to be your best story, but a story that other people have gotten value out of? Uh, look, um, you know, we, we go into communities in workplaces where people are um, in conflict and not happy with each other. Uh, and probably caught up in in poor behaviours with each other. So, um, you know, only uh, only very very recently, I was with a group of people who um, who where two of the people had become a bit too close with each other. Um, they started started what others you know said and insisted they were having an affair. Um, it's uh, you know, to me, it, it, that was their own business. But, you know, in workplaces and if it's a small workplace, everybody pays particular attention to everyone else and people felt as if as if one of the people was giving preferential treatment to the other person. Um, you know, they were coming and going together uh, at certain times of days. They were having days off together, all this going to lunch together, all this sort of stuff. So the gossip train just went, uh, you know, turned just, just went viral as it were um and people started to re- to not trust each other to retreat into camps to say nasty and malicious things about each other and the longer it continued the more people started 
uh, you know, t- the more people continue to avoid each other to the point where um, the workplace grind to a halt. Um, you know, and w- without, I mean, the, the details in situations like that are, um, you know, they're, they're intriguing and fascinating um, and very human and, um, but I'm not going to go into it here, um, you know, beyond saying that those situations, I mean, there's been three David Williamson plays written about our work and, you know, all of the instances that David refers to were real life instances where, you know, where people getting caught up in, in situations that when people look at it, they go, my goodness, how could they do that? How could they do it? It's normal human behaviour for us. So one of the things we do when we try to go into a community or a workplace in conflict is to normalise the situation, um, which might sound a bit weird, but, um, you know, we all have the capacity to get caught up in circumstances that are not good for us um, and go down that path a bit and, and we get into it all by ourselves. It's virtually impossible to get out of it by ourselves. So, um, so you know, yeah, there's... There's a million stories, as it were. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a really good example of conflict that's gone too far. But maybe if they'd been able to address it much earlier on, it wouldn't have escalated like it did. But I guess you guys aren't even called in until um, it's become out of control, right? You know, it's, uh, it's, it's one stream of our business, which we call the repair stream, when we're called in when things are really have really hit the fan. And... It's understandable why they hit the fan because we're yeah, absolutely correct. If if someone there had known how to engage one of those people in a conversation, say, you know what, I, I get a sense that something's going on with you guys. We're all noticing it. Do we need to know something? Can we talk about it? Um, that never happens, you know, or rarely happens, which is a great shame. So you know, we make this distinction between the support we need and the support we want, we want in life. So, you know, if, if I was a, f- you know, a friend at work of that, of one of those people, um, the support they might've needed was for me to go up and say, Hey, you know, I've been hearing things. I've been seeing things. I'm really concerned. What can I do to help you guys out? Because it doesn't feel good from my perspective. So, you know, that's being much more supportive in terms of what people need rather than, you know, the support that people might want is to say, none of your business. And I go, yeah, it's none of my business, no problem at all. And I'll go and talk to someone else about it. Um, so it's an important distinction and, and, and we're often ill-equipped to give each other the support we need to have those conversations early on in the piece. Mm. I mean, it's definitely really important. So can you share some of the best resources you use or that you would recommend for people that are interested in learning and development generally or more specifically around conflict resolution and the kind of work Proactive does? It could be books, blogs, courses, events, websites, those sorts of things. I, um, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeless like this. I tend to find reading novels and reading things like the New York Times or, you know, or, or one of the Daily Rags or something like that or the Weekend Herald or something, I find, tend to find that much more informative for my work than reading uh, Getting to Yes or something on mediation or conflict. Um, you know, in a, in, a, in a technical sense, I guess for me, some of the, some of the things that were enormously influential were 
people I was able to work with. So John Braithwaite from the National University, who's a uh, professor of law or something at, at ANU, um, his book called Crime, Shame and Reintegration, which is now probably 20 or so years old, um, was really informative. Uh, the work of Lauren Abramson at Johns Hopkins in, in Baltimore um, on affect theory, and she was a student of Sylvan Tompkins who wrote um, probably one of the, you know, the most densely informative um, pieces of work you'd ever read called Affect Imagery Consciousness. Um, another one of his students, a psychiatrist in, in uh, Philadelphia, Don Nathanson, called Affect Sex and the Birth of the Self. Um, brilliant stuff, understanding both the physiology, the neurology, all that sort of stuff, the psychology of, of us as, you know, as a species. Um, reading anything on primate politics is, is helpful. Understanding group sizes... Uh, um, you know, all that sort of stuff I, I find fascinating. Um, um, yeah, so, you know, it's hard for me to put my finger on one, on one thing. I'm, I'm a bit of a soak for uh, biographies and things like that and I think they all help understand the situation we're in. But, I, you know, I guess also um, it's, it's going to the theatre and the cinema and stuff like that and actually, you know, when you look at, at research around... And I was reading something this morning around what do people, what affects people. Is it seeing a documentary with real life information there or watching a fictional film um, where things are dramatised? It's the latter all the time. I mean, we are way more powerfully affected by a drama and watching that on a screen or on a stage than we are by simply reading um, the evidence and the data. You know, so again, it's, it's those stories which... Which is what the, I mean. That for me, the the connection between you know having um, had the opportunity to work with David Williamson and having had the opportunity to work then with Michael Reimer, who did the film of Face to Face, and that the connection between the arts and and the workplace for me is really strong and really influential. And there's nowhere near enough of it. Yeah, it's great. I'm sure there's a lot of people that um, working in this space that probably would benefit from being better at storytelling and perhaps worse at PowerPoint slides. <laughs> Death by PowerPoint, I've heard a million times and it's so true. Couldn't agree more. So you've given us a bit of a background on what you think the uh, learning and development industry doesn't do um, that great or could do better. What do you think the future of learning and development looks like to you and what should it look like? Look, I, I think they're... Um you know, if we're if we're trying to engage with groups of people in workplaces to to learn something about ourselves and about each other in terms of how we get on, how we work together more efficiently, effectively, appropriately, all that sort of stuff, I think a better split between um, what I would see as preparation, delivery and follow-up of whatever it is we're offering. So um, we call it the 40-20-40 principle, which is we're coming in to do this work let's understand your environment let's gather as much information as we can about your environment let's give you um, information before we get there it doesn't mean it needs to be absorbed but at least you know it's there we'll come in and do our work and then we'll make sure or, or insist that people inside the agency or the organization will be the champions of that and continue to do it so um, you know I think I think more um, putting things in place which will help sustain whatever the messages are 
Um, I also think in in this in the LND area there could be a lot a lot more practical use of technology to support and follow up face to face sessions. Um, and you know there's some exciting things. Um, and I'm I'm a complete troglodyte when it comes to that stuff, but but I love it and I love the, the, the opportunities and the possibilities that technology has to help us learn more efficiently and more appropriately um, in our own particular way. You know, so I mean, I'm, I'm pretty excited about what technology has to offer us. Yeah, agreed. So is there any other advice or thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Any parting words of wisdom or things that you think uh, important? Um, look, if, if, if we're in the L&D field and what we're offering isn't, isn't fun and it's not interesting to us, then it's a hard slog. Uh, so if, if we're a leader in an organisation, everyone's paying attention to everything we do and say. So the more we can relax and be ourselves, um, the better. You know, especially if we're a member of the executive or, or what's referred to as the C-suite these days. Um, you know, so and, – and also nothing happens in our organisation without our people. So, you know, the, the, there's a need there to pay attention to their needs and to keep paying attention to their needs would be my takeaway. That's great. Thanks so much. So where can our listeners go to find out more about you or Proactive Resolutions? Um, look, they can uh, uh, – we just uh, – the, the classic www.proactive-resolutions.com um, on the website and uh, – or they can uh, contact us at 0419238866 or if you're in North America, 0419238866. All right. Beautiful. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. Lots of insights and takeaways. So until next time, thanks. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cred Podcast. If you have any feedback or recommendations for future podcast guests, we'd love to hear from you. Just email us at hello at credsolutions.org. If you'd like to check out some of the other things we're involved at at Cred, you can go to www.credsolutions.org.